Hi there, and welcome to Polyamory Uncensored, a podcast where we, your hosts, Lindsay Miller and Katie Williams, interview a poly person each episode, and we try to answer the five points of journalism. Who, what, when, where, and why, as it pertains to our poly lives. You are listening to episode 47, where we chat with Eric. Stay tuned as we delve into the good, the bad, the ugly, and the just plain complicated truths about our poly lives. Well, hi, Eric. Uh, so who are you? Okay, who am I? Um, I am Eric. I am have a long-term marriage life partner um, and a also long-term housemate. Um, I, I tendered kind of parallel committed relationships it's is kind of a trend i mean i've i've been with my uh primary for 30 years um and my uh other, other housemate and partner we've been together for a decade so it's long steady and old <laughs> <laughs> all right so um what drew you to polyamory? I honestly, I, I think I've always been poly. Um, one of one of the earliest memories of, you know, considering it as an option, and I guess the the background is I grew up with the music of the '60s, um, and so you have this kind of sort of pervasive free love influence in my thinking, and. I started reading science fiction very, very young um, and studying paganism very, very young. And so you have this sort of world where absent of outside influences to the contrary, anything's possible. So why wouldn't you think of relationships that way? And I've had, I had an experience relatively young with a will broadly say semi-consensual relationship from a, a much older partner. And I'm like, mm, yeah, I'm not comfortable with a situation where I'm owned and I don't want to own anyone else. And, you know, at some point in really my first real official, Hey, we're dating high school relationship. Um, there came a point where she was very possessive she's like yo you know you're hugging your friends you're you know it's them or me and then you know, i kind of looked at her and went well you know i'm sorry you feel that way is 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 that you know it is is it them or or you and she's like yes it's them or me and okay sorry bye and so that's that's kind of been the way I've been from as long as I've had relationships and I've kind of bounced around the various um, permutations of that, but I also got married very young. And so while I'm, you know, in that new relationship energy vibe, it's like, Oh, I'm seriously considering spending the rest of my life with this girl. Wow. And one of our earliest conversations, she came to me, she's like, yeah, you know, I'm, kind of bisexual and kind of not uh, monogamous. And so is that cool? And I'm like, wow, that really takes the energy out of going, you know, through this conversation because we've already had it and we're on the same page. And so that's pretty much how it's been. And 
various permutations throughout our, our entire relationship. Well, and in the interest of full disclosure, I did describe you to Lindsay as my not high school boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty accurate. <laughs> I was confused, no, no, but also had... I'm like, no, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> I don't know that we had much of a vocabulary for it at the time that we were very, very close, but you know, if we had had more of a vocabulary for it, it would have been a poly type of vocabulary. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, just verifying. Yes, indeed. Eric has been at this for a very, very long time. <laughs> I have witnesses. <laughs> so, um, what does polyamory mean to you? I'm a really, really poorly construction word that's always offended me on principle if not actually i mean okay you can call it whatever you want but you're mixing you know word roots and, no mixing greek and latin yeah exactly Fuck you know, you some want. things are sacred <laughs> <laughs> but i think at a broader level it's an acceptance of relationships as they are um, and emotions as they are, rather than trying to pretend that the reality of messy human connection is fixing this box that really has never been practical. Um, and so that's that's my take on it, is it's kind of this giant bucket to which a whole bunch of relationships fit better than kind of your classic idealized non-existent relationship. Um, what, if anything, do you find difficult about polyamory? Relationships are exponential. You know, if, if I have a relationship with one partner, then if we need to communicate, we're communicating. And it's, or we're not, as the case may be, it's, there, there's no permutations to it. Um, you know, in, in my current situation with, with two long-term partners, we've effectively got four relationships to balance. And so that means someone has to do the emotional lifting of, you know, each of us as individual relationships and the collective um in in our particular form of it and so it for me it's it's a lot more lifting on the emotional and communication side it makes it more complicated you know the simple discussion of what do we have for dinner i, I can't just go to my wife and say oh, hey, what, what are you into for dinner okay let's do that it becomes what are you into what are you into are we eating dinner together so i guess we kind of broached on this a little bit but when did you know you were poly? Maybe not just like when ha had you started acting differently, but when did you know you were poly? Kind of, kind of hard to say exactly when. It was definitely in my late teens, early twenties, when I realized I wasn't willing to choose. I wasn't willing to choose between the quality of the relationship that I had with different people because I was supposed to be emotionally committed to only one person ever. 
And then I also realized as kind of part of that same process, I guess, that I was really lousy at falling out of love with people. Falling in love with someone was easy, right? You know, you're like, ooh, this is new and shiny and they're super cool. But, you know, people that I'd broken up with that we no longer had active relationships, um, at least the same active relationships, in some cases, none. It's like, you know, I think about them and in some ways I feel the same. I'm like, I'm not willing to live in a situation where I have to pretend that I don't care about someone just because we're no longer in the classical relationship. I have to tell a funny story about that, actually, which is about um, going to your wedding. (laughs) Um, So I, at that point in time, thought of myself as monogamous. And I also did not think of us as having had a romantic relationship, even though um, that was clearly a weird form of denial on my part and not actually based on any accurate possible reading of history. Um, And I drove to Eric and his uh, long-term partner wife's wedding um, in college with another person who Eric had been romantically involved with, who was a very close friend of mine. And the two of you had a conversation a few days before we left where you told her how happy you were that so many of your ex-girlfriends were coming to (laughs) the wedding. And I don't remember what the number was, but there was a number. And I went through the number, and it was like five or six ex-girlfriends were coming to the wedding. And I was like... I can only come up with one, two, three, four. Like, who's the fifth? And she was like, well, what do you mean who's the fifth? I'm like, well, okay, I can think of this person, you, this person, this person, this person, this person, but I don't know who the last person is. And she just looked at me and was like, um, hello, it's you. <laughs> like, what? What? What are you talking about? <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, if that's true, when did we break up? Apparently we're still dating because we never broken up. So that's what made me think of this <laughs> when you were telling the story of like things may fade out in a way, but they don't really change. Like, yeah, okay, right. What changed? Nothing changed. We just saw each other less because I moved away. But I thought that was funny because I just, my, my deep denial coincides very well with your you know, why would you bother falling out of love with somebody? (laughs) That actually is one of the single most terrifying moments of my life. Because I walked into the kitchen, the reception for for the hand fasting was at my mother-in-law's. And I look and my brand new wife, you know, capital W wife, is (laughs) sitting in the kitchen with a group of women who collectively know every stupid thing I've ever done in a relationship. (laughs) And they're laughing and giggling. (laughs) Like, well, it's all on the table now, isn't it? Well, fortunately, all of them love you, so. I am very pleased with that. And that's, actually, I I joke about it, but I'm actually very proud of that, that, Um, Even those who I've left the relationship on somewhat rocky paths, we found a space where we can admit that even if the relationship isn't the same necessarily, 
there was deep caring there and at one level there still is and that's important to me i mean it's you're going to be part of someone's life and so you want at least some of the memories to be good you know whether or not you're still together whether or not the breakup was ugly and stupid and loud and dramatic you know that moment in time doesn't counteract the influence and the love you had for each other. So the next question that we usually ask is um, when, uh, if ever, but I feel comfortable that this is it when, uh, when did you feel different? Not just Polly necessarily, but. Wow. That's, that's actually a really interesting because there's levels, right? Um, And I'm, either part of or attached to so many subcultures that I don't know if I've ever not felt different. You know, I was you know, the weird kid who read a lot and the one who, you know, went, went to the library. I was the one who was very loudly practicing various forms of weird religion. Um, you know, I was bisexual when that meant you were gay, I suppose going back to language i'm i'm now pan i missed the memo someone should have said <laughs> something that said hey this is how you feel um this is the word for it now it would really help things in a lot of cases <laughs> um you know it's i i had various forms of open relationships which was weird um you know i'm a bicyclist which is weird i play with sword on the weekends which is weird so you know that's all been part of this you're different but honestly the the critical point to me and i think the one that's most relevant to polly is sitting at a party sometime either in late high school or early college and i was sitting in the kitchen as was generally my want with a room full of women talking about stuff and one of my friends like dude what are you do doing in here with all the girls i'm like you're sitting in the living room drinking beer and making fart noises and i'm talking to your girlfriend why aren't you here (laughs) and that really was the moment i'm like oh maybe i'm just wired different in a lot of ways and it there's definitely been some times where it's uncomfortable like okay you know kind of navigate this world on the fringes on the other hand it's somewhat freeing to go okay i'm weird whatever Mm -hmm. and (laughs) yeah in any of those you know broad range of weirdnesses exactly when you can sort of own it you can carve out your own path yeah this is me you know you don't like it there's the door and let me add that, you know, living life on easy mode, being, you know, a white dude who's married and the size of a house, <laughs> there's not the inherent threat of difference. You know, I can kind of make a space where that's comfortable, and most people aren't going to question that. And, to a certain extent that allows me to provide coverage for other people when someone's like, Hey, they're weird. Yeah. And I am too. Your point. Mm -hmm. Oh wait, perhaps that's not as important to other them in this moment when this dude is looking at me as if he's interested in what my response to this is going to (laughs) be. 
Yeah, I think uh, finding ways to use that kind of social power and privilege is um, is itself it's uh, sort of like the good side of privilege. Like it feels like a privilege to be able to provide that cover to other people for me when I'm in, you know, the version of that in my life. Yeah. And, and that's that's part of the reason why I'm not actively loudly out poly but i'm also not you know there's no denial this is who i am and so that keeps that level of uncertainty and that uncertainty around a lot of things becomes a bubble of protection for people who aren't as privileged or aren't as secure in their space Mm -hmm. so where do you feel you are in your poly journey you know, I'm, I'm here, I guess, is the short version. I'm, I'm pretty settled. I mean, there's a point where you just don't have time for the chaos that new relationship energy brings. Um, and people are still shiny. I mean, Clint Eastwood, who may not be the most politically correct quote in this, um, scene, um, said a great thing about being older as a man. What he said was, you know, you get to the point where you stop having to take orders from a little guy in a German army helmet. <laughs> and I think that really is where I'm at. It's like, you know, there's still shiny things out there, but I don't have to chase them all. I have, I'm blessed with a very stable and loving relationship with a lot of support around me. And so I'm content. If, if you have to ask where I am, I'm content. And, you know, to a certain extent, I've, I've watched some longer-term relationships wind down just organically and naturally as part of the process, and that's okay. Um, and I'm, you know, blessed with a partner who puts up with my crap and hasn't murdered me yet. So it... <laughs> Actually, at this point, a pair of partners who put up with my crap and haven't murdered me yet. <laughs> so, we'll call that a win as long as I'm waking up unstabbed. Waking up unstabbed is definitely a good goal. <laughs> um, in fact, uh, maybe that's the answer to the next question, which is where do you hope <laughs> to go on your poly journey? <laughs> yes, I'd prefer that that at least be a part of it. But actually, it's it's kind of interesting. We're in this environment where we're suddenly all confronting death um some of us more personally than others and so for me that whole concept of where do we go as we age as we die as we you know go wherever we're going and what does that leave has become something that's a lot on my mind as you know, you look at the world around us and just, you know, I get up in the morning and my knees hurt and I'm like, hmm, at some point, you know, I'm probably going to be at the point where I may not be able to get up. Hmm, what does that mean for the state of things? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, where do I hope to go is to do that gracefully and with love and remain unstabbed. <laughs> Hopefully that's an achievable goal. 
I'm sure there are days we'll, we'll leave <laughs> the partnerships in question. <laughs> so uh, one of our last questions is, why do you think you are Polly? Why do I think I'm Polly? Really, because at this point, that's how I'm wired. Um, I don't have a choice. Um, my choice is to either pretend to be something I'm not and lie about it, or live genuinely in a way that might be slightly more risky, but isn't really a lot for me. And, you know, just be who I am. So at this point, it's built into my nature, built into my thought process, built into my life. So that's where I am. And why did you agree to be interviewed? Why did I agree to interview? I, I think I think the concept is interesting. Um, my original thought is was originally who the heck would want to know about that? Um, and after listening to a few of the podcasts and some other podcasts on the subject and kind of tipping my toe into a couple of online communities and leaving some of them just as abruptly. <laughs> um, I think, I think the more perspective you have from different stages in life, from different types of relationship um, helps to normalize things. And at a certain point, you know, we're all that, that little kid who knew he was weird and or she was weird, or they were weird, um, and thought there's something wrong with me. And if I can help create an environment where they know, at the very least, however weird they're feeling right now, that it's possible to live this way and live it long term and live it happily, then, you know, why wouldn't I? You know, if I could give that little bit of comfort to someone who might need it, and, you know, it's a chance to meet someone new and to chat with an old friend which is never bad either all right that is part one <laughs> so this is where we usually take a little momentary break and i got a text saying somebody left brownies downstairs so i am gonna actually take a like one minute <laughs> break and run downstairs and get the brownies off of my front porch all right welcome back to the podcast and today uh with eric we're going to be talking about a little bit of paganism, a little bit of uh, poly vocabulary, and and how those intersect. So um, I guess what I what I would like to ask for clarification, and, and I'm sure audience members too, uh, what is paganism? What does that mean to you? Paganism is actually like polyamory. Paganism is a really broad group. Some of which would call themselves pagans, and some probably wouldn't these days. Um, of alternative religions slash spirituality slash ways of thinking. And really it's either formally or informally that broad group is bucketed into either earlier cultures or indigenous cultures or a general attachment to nature and the elements of nature and the flow of nature as opposed to a doctrinal or dogmatic traditional uh, by the book religion. Um, and some, some of, I mean, like I said, it's a very broad, broad 
group, it goes everything from people who are probably more dogmatic than many of the mainstream uh, Protestant religions, where you're just doing things a different way. There's people who are doing formal magical rituals. You've got dope smoking hippies in the woods, and you have everything in between kind of gets bucketed into paganism slash not Christianity. Um, although back in my uh, uh, production shop days, I'm sitting on a production line with someone, um, you know, and of course, when you're in an environment where you're standing next to each other for eight hours a day, um, you're not supposed to talk about religion, sex, or politics. So of course, all you do is talk about religion, sex, or politics. <laughs> and he, we were talking about religion. I told him I was pagan. He's like, what's that? And I gave him the explanation. And he's like, oh, you mean like a Catholic? <laughs> because, of course, we're in a Baptist part of the world. And to him, you know, Catholics and pagans were the same. So... Um, on, honorable shout out to any Catholics in the audience. I do not mean you, even though some <laughs> Baptists might put you in that bucket. <laughs> so before we got started, you talked a little bit about the link between um, being pagan and being poly. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that while we're officially talking. Fair enough. I, to me, both of them have um, elements that are that are very similar in root. They're they're both subcultures, for want of a better thing. You you both have you're outside of normal quote unquote society, um, and you have a strong tradition of individual freedom and individual um, rights, um, autonomy, and within the group there's also a, a very strong association with you know being drunk in the woods and doing what you do and you know <laughs> that's an acceptable part of the thing and when you're looking back to a lot of um pre-christian or pseudo pre-christian cultures you have a lot of alternative sexuality being adapted into cultures in a completely different way um, where, you know, you might have a third sex or you might have it being socially acceptable for me to, you know, show up at your house, sleep with your wife. And, you know, nine months later, you, you have a new son. Congratulations. Um, and so there's an acceptance as part of that. Um, and I, I have to kind of, as an aside, there's definitely some pagan groups where, you've got hierarchical and coercive relationships where that's part of it. Um, you know, it's, it's not all sunshine and roses and hippies in the woods, you know, it's, it's mind games and anything you get when you have a group of people being people together, but there's a strong link between those groups and acceptance of communal relationships of various sorts or of, freer sexuality than you would in a traditional dogmatic lineage. I want to shout out to the mead makers in both groups also. <laughs> you know, mead helps with that initial social awkward interaction like nobody's business. <laughs> you know, you got lots of energy from the calories. You've got 
Lots of inhibitions out the window. And it's tasty, too. And it's got the fine honeymoon tradition. So, you know, <laughs> here you are. Do you find that um, polyamory and paganism overlap quite a bit? Being attached to a lot of subcultures, I tend to find that in general subcultures overlap. Um, polyamory and paganism have a very strong traditional overlap. It's, it's one of those, is it a chicken and egg sort of thing are the same people who are willing to be creative and think outside the normal process about their religious preferences and to i think part of part of the paganism thing that's more mainstream is you're as much creating a religion as you are following one because you're picking and choosing from a whole bunch of traditions which might or might not fit you um, and making something your own. And so I think that same element that causes you to want to do that is very likely to cause you to be able to think outside the, you know, this is the traditional relationship and it isn't working for me. How do I get what I want, you know, sexually or emotionally or financially or any of those relationship bits? In terms of the vocabulary for both it seems like there are a lot of subcultural elements that influence kind of the way anybody involved in ethical non-monogamy talks about it and also i suspect that might be the case in different kinds of pagan communities though i have no knowledge at all but yeah, a, a lot of it is more of you. You've got certain certain language assumptions that you make. You know, if if I'm in a pagan group and someone says, you know, they're the high priestess, I have very specific things that that says. You know, that's a job function. They're in a hierarchical group. They're probably from context. You know, something that came from the Gardnerian tradition. Um, so there's, there's things that I can pull out if I'm part of the subculture, um, you know, I'm going to circle. Anyone involved in that knows that we're going to go have a, um, religious ritual. Anyone outside of it has no idea what you're talking about, or at least little, if they haven't been exposed to it. Circle, what? You know, right. Right. You know, I, yeah, that doesn't I, sound like an object. It sounds like a description of an object, or right. it doesn't sound like a thing you would do. But yeah, yeah, we were talking after circle yesterday. Um, you know, we're probably going to go skyclad. You know, here's the term. We have no idea what that means if you're outside the subculture, and all subcultures work that way. Right. You know. Right. If if I tell you that in the SEI I fight, I fight polearm, you're going to go, huh? Right. <laughs> Unless you're in that particular piece of, of knowledge. So it's, it's not that. And I, what I found on the uh, poly side of things is, you know, having drifted off in my stable relationship world and not done a lot of reading or talking or thinking about that, I came back to a fully fledged set of terminology that I didn't understand. Um, so the, I mean, metamor being the, the most, obvious one that's sort of fallen slowly into more common usage um, 
or partner in that context. Um, and so it's, it's always interesting running into a subculture you're part of or another piece of a subculture. Like, what does this word mean? Or just the drift from what's accepted within a language to what isn't. Mm -hmm. You know, is pagan accurate? You know, no, I'm, I'm a Gardnerian. I'm an eclectic. I'm whatever. You know, I'm following North mythology, so I'm a heathen rather than a pagan, even though it, the bucket is very, very similar. There are people who have gotten more precise with the language. And in Pali, you've, you've got this thing where we need a word for this that we don't have. You know, at, at a relatively recent point in my life, if I'm describing people, it's like, okay, I have a housemate, I have a wife, and I have my mistress, because that's what she wants to be called, because it's fun. <laughs> um, but th all of those things have context outside of the polysphere, right? You know, housemate, the implication is, no, we're not in a committed relationship. It's just someone we're living with. Not necessarily true. You know, wife, the assumption is we're exclusive. Also not necessarily true. You know, mistress, it's illicit and not the sort of person that we have in over for dinner every Sunday with the whole crew. You know, so there's that language. And so I found myself coming in. It's like, okay, a what? Who is this? Where did these words come from? One of the first things, that was probably one of the first sort of coming out poly moments for me, you know, in my last few years was actually sitting down my now partner and metamor and demanding a vocabulary lesson with a certain degree of aggression because I felt like the language that I was used to using for what I would to describe what I thought I wanted um, wasn't translating. And you have to use the, if you're looking for something, you've got to use the language that's going to help you find it or help the other people who are looking for something similar find you. And if you're using dated language, it might not work. Well, well, at least that was the assumption that I was operating under. I don't know that you're wrong because the, the lack of terminology and the lack of shared terminology or historically the lack of any terminology means there's another barrier to communication in a situation where communication is already difficult, complicated, and sometimes fraught with peril. Right. Like I sort of came into this thinking like, okay, maybe what I'm looking for is a friend with benefits. And that, that is still a thing, but I think it doesn't say what I was trying to say. And I knew it was the right ballpark, but I also knew it wasn't actually going to communicate. And so, you know, fortunately, my kind and longer out poly friends said, well, yes, we would be happy to explain to you how to translate that into language that we and other people will understand in this community. Like, oh, thank you. <laughs> I need to hang out with your friends because I'm still confused half the time. <laughs> yeah. um, it's... Well, and it's interesting because you have that same problem, though, if you're on the opposite end of it, right? If I come in and I know all the language and 
you know, it's fully fledged. I have a word for this. And I come to you say, hey, I want this, whatever that is. And you don't know what I'm talking about. I think the the language is an advantage if you share it, but it becomes yet another barrier if you don't. You know, if, if you say we're going to have friends with benefits and that means something different to you than it does to me, I'm going to make the wrong assumption. Right. Well, and I think that's where language really has to be the starting point for the conversation, not the ending point for the conversation. Like, what does that mean to you? Well, it means X, Y, Z. You know, I want to see somebody n times a week or a month or what have you. And, you know, I don't at all want us to be on a track of where future cohabitation is on the table and, you know, whatever other things you actually, actually mean. I think the problem, though, what you see and side note Part, part of the paganism thing is I do a lot of what, in a, in a lot of ways, is kind of traditional pastorally ministry. You know, I talk to people about their problems um, and help them work them out and help them frame it. And that's part of the reason I'm eager to learn the language, because I'm suddenly talking to people who are outside my generation who know the language and I don't. And at a certain point, I become the old Catholic be- priest who's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Um, and I have no desire to be that. Um, but Father Eric, yes, exactly. <laughs> Father Eric is 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 this position sinful <laughs> if you do it right? Um, but I think the the problem is that we see a lot of cases where you say this person is my ex, and that's the end of the conversation. You know, you've you've put them in this language box. And that's really where I see a lot of the problems coming in in poly relationships is I've put them in this language box and that means we don't have to talk about it. Mm. Um, And again, when your exponent for your relationship goes up and up and up and you're balancing some group of larger than two, um, it becomes really, really dangerous to just put someone in a box and assume that the inside of the box looks like the outside and we're all comfortable here. Speaking of um, some like terminology that that folks might not know or be familiar with, you did mention hand fasting before, um, and I know that that's a a pretty pagan ritual. And I was wondering if that's also a pretty poly ritual, or if they again do they overlap in in ways that there are poly hand fasting ceremonies. So hand fasting is a termed commitment. It, it actually comes out of nominally and any source of pagan traditions, feel free to take with a giant bucket of salt, but it comes nominally out of the Celtic tradition of you, you hand fast, you have someone who, who you take as a partner and as your bride, as your husband for a year and a day. Um, and traditionally, the process was, okay, is you've got a bunch of tribes um, with limited genetic material. Um, is, this, is this relationship fer- fertile? You know, you're getting together to bear children. Is this relationship fertile? Are you going to have kids? So a year and a day is enough time to get to know each other, consummate the marriage, have some kids. Okay, you know that you can live, live together for a year, 
without killing each other, presumably. And hopefully you have a, a fertile marriage, unstabbed. which is the goal. Yes, unstabbed. Um, and so it's very common in a, sort of a formal living together situation in pagan circles. You know, we're going to get handfasted, and either we're figuring out if this relationship is good or we're you know, saving up the money for a real marriage. So it's a less formal ceremony. It's, you know, with a smaller group. Um, and because of the strong crossover between poly and pagan, at least that's my theory, it's also something that works very well for, I, this relationship has no legal basis, but we're connected in a formal way. We're a household, we're a family, we're whatever. And so I've seen it cross over into that realm where kind of the religious tradition is gone um, in the, the broader sense, but it's a formal welcoming ceremony that's been picked up on the poly side. You know, we're, we're hand-fasted in that we're a family unit. So some of the terminology you were using before uh, suggested that maybe your relationships have a hierarchy? That's that's interesting. That one of, one of the things that I've noticed um, dipping my uh, my toe back into poly conversation is there's been this um, this whole vibe that any sort of hierarchy is bad. You know, hierarchical relationships inherently evil, and I think there's an element of truth to that. Um, in that, if you've got a hierarchy someone's going to be lesser, you've got an element of coercion, you've got definitely the opportunity for hurt feelings. But I think that same vibe is a little bit idealistic when you've got a situation where you've got a nesting partnership of some sort, where, you know, I'm sharing a house at the very least, maybe bills, maybe kids, maybe a public face, and I have someone or someone's that I see on X formal relationship. And so my relationship is, I mean, and it started out very formally hierarchical. You know, this is my primary partner. These other relationships are secondary relationships. My primary partner has veto of them over them and vice versa. Um, quite frankly, there are several I can think of that I wish she'd used it. <laughs> but you know we we live and learn and um you know it's you, you get smarter as you go through more relationships and more variations on the theme and go hmm perhaps that giant red flag wasn't just a pretty decoration um, <laughs> but what i found is the more established the relationship is the quote-unquote primary relationships, the longer we've been together with various permutations, the less important that hierarchy is. Um, it's, I think there's still an element of that because we have a legal, on-paper attachment. At a certain point, you know, if I've been with a quote-unquote secondary partner for 15 years, there's a certain amount of inertia to that where it's much easier to talk about balancing needs. And really, 
what I found most of the points where hierarchy comes into conflict is when that's your only answer to balancing needs, right? You know, I'm the primary, I come first. You're a secondary, you're less. Your needs are less important. Um, and so what I find here is that if the conversation is about meeting everyone's needs as best as we can with limited resources, be those financial, emotional, or temporal, um, then you have a, a more real conversation. And it's it's there's no hierarchy at all. You're simply talking about, okay, we need to collectively make decisions about how to spend our resources. And the odds are pretty good if they're finite. At some point, someone's going to be happy. You know, I would really like a nice new motorcycle. That's probably not in the cards right now. You know, I would really like to spend 24-7 with this shiny new relationship. But there are some practical considerations to that. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not, I have to be, to a certain extent, that new relationship energy has to be checked enough for me to rationally go, look, this person's been with me for 20 bloody years. Um, probably they're going to feel a little unhappy if I'm suddenly not spending t any time or energy on them. And so I think if you talk about it in terms of current needs and balancing that, the hierarchy goes away. And honestly, most of the long-term functional relationships like that, whatever they say, whether they're officially hierarchical or officially completely not, it boils down to the same thing. They have regular conversations about balancing needs, and there's some established mechanism for dealing with that, or they just blow up. So, so terminology-wise, I feel like a lot of people will say that the opposite of a hierarchical relationship is a is a um, a relationship anarchy one, where you're not necessarily using um, uh, primary or or even sometimes wife or husband labels. Um, but I was wondering if if in the pagan community hierarchies or um, or the more relationship anarchy model seem to be more common, just even just mentality wise. I think you have within the larger bucket, there's very strong subgroups of both, sure. uh, some of which are very, very hierarchical and very formal um, coming from the classical magic tradition, which is modeled on the Christian tradition of you have degrees and um, you know, some of it very elaborate, very formal. Um, and some, you know, if if someone is a priestess, for example, in, in that situation, or a priest, we don't have a good general neutral <laughs> priest word, um, which is interesting. I'm, I'm surprised. I'm sure there's some group who has developed one, and I'm wrong. And I'll say that right now. <laughs> I'm not aware of... <laughs> a good uh, word for that. But in, in this case, if, I, if someone is a priestess, it could be that they are a specific rank in a very formal ranked structure. Or it could be that they're the one reading the ritual this week. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in general, what you tend to see is again, like Polly, either you have a very formal hierarchy that you 
chill out on after a while. Um, or you have complete anarchy and you realize that someone needs to run things. You need to have some traditions. And so I found that as both those groups age, they kind of compress toward a slightly smaller sphere than we started out at. But yeah, no, I, I think that that applies very strongly to both. And I will say that in both groups, people are really, really passionate about which one is capital R right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Especially if they're new to either. Oh, yeah. That, I think, is very, very accurate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't speak to the pagan side, but certainly on the poly side, I, I think that is definitely accurate. Well, one of my, my questions was kind of, and, and I think you you pretty much just answered it, but that um, the way you describe paganism sounds like it's it, you can pick and choose what works for you and what doesn't, but are there people who treat it the same way that they do, like, uh, Catholicism where they, there are strict rules and rituals that you must abide by. It seems like there are. Yeah. Okay. You have some people who are very strict as to the source material. So, you know, we're, we're going to pull everything from a particular culture or a particular tradition. There's some people, I mean, at this point, the neo-pagan, movement has been going on since the 30s i mean it really it really came back in in the 60s but i mean at this point you've got somewhere between 50 and 100 years of tradition and effectively what you have is a series of religions i mean it's like christianity you have a, a whole bunch of individual religions lumped in a large bucket called paganism and they're all over the map you have very conservative pagans and you have very progressive pagans and you have very feminist pagans and very not feminist <laughs> pagans. It is interesting how even within subcultures, you still definitely see a reflection of the culture writ large. You do. And, and of course, you add to that bucket, which is sometimes lumped in, You've got various indigenous practices that, let's be honestly, half the time are, are, are co-opted by white people and called something else. But there are so very live, long-term, much longer than, you know, the 100 years traditions that are bucketed in that simply because they're nominally similar. Mm-hmm. So do you think that there's anything uh, innately spiritual about polyamory? Yeah. Um, because a lot of the spiritual or magical, whatever you want to call that energy raising or connection, um, a lot of it has to do with intent, right? I'm going to put my, my will, my effort, my energy into making this thing happen. Um, and whether I'm, you know, meaning to try to heal someone or to celebrate something, I'm putting that energy into this collective thing. And in a lot of ways, that's exactly what you're doing. You're, you're taking this very 
you know, individualized group of people and you're putting your energy and your time and your focus into creating a thing, you know, creating a relationship, capital R, or not, <laughs> as you choose. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there's pretty strong parallels when you talk about intentional um, anything. That makes a lot of sense to me. That intentionality is definitely something happens, whether it's in the realm of sort of the specifically spiritual or the towards having relationships that are outside of maybe the traditional American cultural norm. Well, you're you're creating a new path, right? I mean, to put it in in purely mundane terms, if if I have a road. Probably it was started that way because someone started walking that way, you know, and it might have been the deer started walking that way 200 years ago. And so there's a good path here or because there was a good path here. And so you have these well-trod paths that, you, you know, you might have a different at this point, it's a highway that our society is very comfortable moving down. And you might have, okay, this is a well-established exit. That you know, that neighborhood down there is a little seedy. We don't trust that. Um, but really, taking a right off the highway, walking down through a ditch and through the woods is going to take a certain amount of intent. But if enough people do it, you, you get a little footpath. And then eventually, you know, you might have a sidewalk. You might have someone else builds a road, you know, 50 years down the road. And it's easier for anyone else to walk that path. And the same is true of an alternative religion. The same is true of any non-mainstream sexuality. So one thing I like to ask our guests is uh, if they have any advice for people in similar situations. Um, and so I guess one thing that that could lead to is, like, do you have any advice for people who are interested in paganism? I don't know. Is, is Sturgeon's Law a common thing? Is if you're both looking at me like I I'm from Mars. So, yeah. uh, new theater sturgeon. Yes, it's a new vocabulary word. Use it well. Um, theater sturgeon's a golden age science fiction writer, um, and like many rules of the internet, there's there's some that are more established. Sturgeon's law is ninety percent of everything is crap, <laughs> and right. this especially applies to any resource on alternative anything, but especially on uh, paganism, because there is a very strong reward for being the king of a very small group, um, or queen, or, <laughs> again, we need, a, we need a word for a non-specific ruler. Um, and so you have a lot of people who are very dogmatic in their small box, and this is the way. Um, and so the advice that comes from that is really is if the way you're picking feels wrong, it's probably wrong for you right now. And to pay attention to the little voices in your head that say something's off here. Um, trust your judgment. Be open. Explore. The other thing is try everything on. You know, it's you're creating something there's someone out there who is weird the same way you are and something will resonate and you don't know where you'll find that. So keep looking. 
Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Questions or anything like that? Um, I don't think I have any other specific questions, but I do want to thank you for agreeing to be interviewed and for uh, letting me tell some fun stories about uh, our history. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting to reflect on it after all these years where we've ended up. Um, That's true. And I think I think it's good. I think we're we're both in a much more healthy for want of a better term <laughs> at least a happier space than you know we we were at 15 which i'll call a win absolutely <laughs> and we're both still alive which i'll definitely call a win <laughs> see i'm stabbed yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right well thank you so much for being on the podcast this was super fun i learned a lot i actually didn't know anything about paganism pretty much so there you go <laughs> excellent thanks a lot it's been fun Talk to you soon. It has been fun. Wonderful to catch up too. And thank you guys both. Talk to you soon. Bye. And that is it from us at Polyamory Uncensored. We have been Lindsay Miller and Katie Williams. We'd like to thank podcast husband Rob for being our sound engineer. And thank you, Lindsay, for editing this podcast so that we sound smart. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Polyamory Uncensored. Contact us at polyamoryuncensored at gmail.com if you have a listener question or a comment. And if you'd like to support us at all, you can send us a monthly contribution at anchor.fm slash polyamoryuncensored and simply click on the support this podcast button. If you'd like to support the podcast with a one-time contribution, we've set up a PayPal link to make it super easy. Thank you for your support in any amount at paypal.me slash polyamoryuncensored. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and remember... We love you. Bye.